0: Well, Christmas is on its way. We're getting ever closer and closer and closer. And as we dive into our third uh, sermon here on this series of The Point of Christmas, we're continuing to make that statement, you know, Christmas just isn't Christmas without the point. We've looked at some secular Christmas songs. I think of a bunch of the fun ones that are out there and how they all point to good things, right? They point to how our gifts are delivered and to Santa and to homecomings and to snow and to and to the wonder of the season. But what we've been pointing out is that without the centerpiece of Jesus, without the core of what Christmas is about, there's a very kind of blankness that can occur and, and, and a sense that it begins to dissolve. And we've been calling ourselves back to the, the songs of the church Church, the carols of the season to remind us exactly what we are looking at when it comes to the point of Christmas, namely... Jesus Christ. And so for me, I really kind of sat back and thought of wonder this week. As we're looking at wonder and, and the wonder of Christmas, man, when you're a kid, the wonder of Christmas is huge, isn't it? I mean, it's just gigantic. You've you got Santa, you've got all the trees and the presents and, and the beauty and flying reindeer. It's just a lot of things to be wondered at. I know as a kid, that was a big deal for my family. Uh, we'd go up Kahalka. I've grown up here in, Cal- in, in Corona all my life and We'd head up the windy road of Cahalco back when it was much windier and much much more awkward and precarious, so I'd have nightmares as a kid, like falling off my bike and falling into one of the ravines up there. But... Thanks Christmas Eve. Anyway, so we'd go up there on Christmas Eve, head on up to to my grandmother's house, where we would get to see her tree, and inevitably we'd creep around the corner because I was always excited because it always looked like somebody had thrown like a, a like a gift bomb into the house, and was just there was so many presents everywhere, just boom, it would have exploded, and you're just. Picking through them to look at what they are. Eventually, we'd all start opening them. We'd start throwing them at each other, and my aunt would start yelling at us to stop throwing uh, all the all the wrappings at each other. And so there's this kind of fun family festive feeling. And then somebody would eventually yell, "Hey, there's something outside! You guys got to see this!" And all of us little kids, like at the ages of five and down, we're like rush outside because somebody swore they saw Santa, right? And so we're all standing out there looking up at the stars. And this is the '80s, so you've got the smog layer; you can't see a whole lot, but. Um, You're looking up there, and you're going like, where? And somebody would invariably find the one airplane flying over at the time that's flashing with a little red light. And we're like, there's Rudolph. We're like, is he coming here? and We'd watch, like, like hoping. And he'd just keep on going. We're like, oh, I guess Santa's got to go to LA first, you know, kind of just off it goes. And eventually we'd turn around, somebody would yell, Santa was here, you just missed him, every single year, right? So, and there'd be new presents laid out, and we'd open stuff up. It was just a lot of fun. And then you kind of get older, and you become that teenager, and you've done your investigations, and you really find out how presents work, and delivered, and all that stuff. And inevitably, you didn't, your parents don't know what to buy you anymore as a teenager, and so I'd sit down And there would be all those gifts, and now the wonder of the gifts is gone, because I know the only package under there is mine, and it's flannel pajamas, and that's about it. And there wouldn't really be a whole heck of a lot else as we're trying to figure it out, but that's kind of how it goes, right, with all kinds of things. You remember the wonder you have at the beginning of a relationship as you're exploring each other and, and wondrous about who, who this person is. And, and then after time, you get used to each other. Maybe it's the first time you're starting a subject, and you're amazed at the camera, and you're amazed at this thing that you're going to learn how to do. And after a while, the wonder's gone. It's more of a, a, a chore. Maybe it's something you know how to do. There's just The wonder diminishes with the more you study and the more you look into it. And the same thing is true for so many people with Christmas. But what I want to do is call us back to the part of Christmas that creates a wonder, that I believe that if you really capture it and you really know it, it will never stop delivering on wonder, no matter how deeply you study it, no matter how far in you press, because the further you go, the more wonder appears. And and it's found in this song, Silent Night. If you have it in your handouts, if you want to grab those lyrics and look at it, we just sang it. And uh, what I want to do is kind of lay out again... Just from the song of Christmas, this carol of Christmas, that wonder that occurs amongst us at Christmas time. It starts here. The first verse is silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace. Sleep in heavenly peace. And so there's this picture of the, you know, you're in the manger, you're at the trough, the baby's been born. I don't know why he's not crying. That seems scary to me, that he should be crying. And yet he's he's so tender, he's so mild. You know, we love to make Jesus sound unhuman in so many ways. And yet, verse two picks up. Now we're out in the field, silent night, holy night, shepherds quake at the sight, a glorious stream from heaven afar, and heavenly hosting, hallelujah, Christ the Savior is born. And what we did is we picked up some of these, right? We talked about the Savior last week. A week before we Talked about this one who we were expecting, and the virgin birth, and those kind of things. And now we hit verse three. What I want to pick up on today: the wonder, silent night, holy night, Son of God, loves pure light, radiant beams from Thy holy face, with the dawn of redeeming grace. Jesus, Lord, at Thy birth. Jesus, Lord, at Thy birth. To me, as a as a kid, I don't know about you. That last verse was the weirdest one. Anybody with me on that? I mean. Whenever I thought about Jesus with a, you know, radiant beams from thy holy face, I always think of the glowworm. You remember the glowworms? You know, turn them on, they have a the little bright face and a little green body, and you set them down. And that's what I always thought. It's just like this face going, it's like, that is the weirdest thought in the world. And what the author is trying to capture, what he's trying to, to actually bring you to understand, is that there's something happening here with this child. And it's better found in the word, Son of God and Jesus, Lord at thy birth that the wonder of Christmas is not just found in how your gifts are delivered. It's not found in what your gifts are going to be. It's not found in the twinkle lights and the beauty of the season. It's found in the fact that what we celebrate is that God came to earth as a human named Jesus, that Jesus was born as the son of God. He is Christ the Lord And here's the thing, man, if that was true, you would be able to ponder and wonder about who God is and what is he doing the rest of your life, and the wonder would never end. And so the question really is, how do we know that what we're celebrating in Jesus being God is true? I mean, when I talk to my atheist friends um, over the years, inevitably, we'll get into the conversation will say, so what would it take for you to really believe? And they'll say something to the kind of like, well, God would have to split open the heavens and he would have to lean down and shout, hey, Greg, or whatever, I'm God. And then be like, oh, you do exist. I'm like, no, you wouldn't. You think you were hallucinating. He's like, yeah, you're probably right. Because seeing isn't believing. Just because God shows up and shouts doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to believe that you're saying. So there's all these kind of other rubrics we start to build. But here's the thing. I think what we all believe and what every human being believes is that if God was to show up, really, truly appear on earth, he would make it clear, wouldn't he? He would make it obvious. He would make it clear and he would shout about it. It would be so clear. We, we should be able to, to know. Now, there's always going to be people doubting things. There are people doubting we landed on the moon. There's, there's, uh, there's doubts about things we see all the time. So God could shout, but he would make it clear. And I believe that he did. I believe that what we'll discover is that the wonder of Christmas is that God truly came. And when he came, he did. He made it clear. So how would he do this? How would he go about making it clear? Well, first, I think God would identify himself. And so we've got some packages up here. And what I want to do real quick is give you a sense of what these packages have in them. So it's like, oh, cool. We all like presents. I wonder what's inside. You know, we shake it. We look at it. In this case, what's inside is a big, giant name tag. So... Ooh, fun, name tags. And this name tag says, hello, my name is God. Because I really think that God would identify himself. He would show up at the party, he would slap on the name tag, and it would say, hello, my name is God. He would be like, he's not gonna hide it. He would have to tell us, hey, I'm God. But here's the problem. What kind of people literally ever really wear that name tag? And I'm talking about really where the name tag. I'm not talking about like when you, you'll do a Google search, who's claimed to be God, right? And there, you're going to have all these imperial authorities, like the Roman Caesars and, and the kings of Greece and Persia, who are going to claim they're a deity amongst many deities. I'm not talking about that idea. I'm not talking about the, all the people who come out nowadays in their new age visions and concepts and their Hindu thinking of pantheism, which is that everything's God. I'm God. You know, your God. The chair is God. The tensile is God. The package is God even, yeah, everything is God. The air you breathe is God. You know, not that kind of thing. There's lots of people who have claimed to be God. In fact, most of them claim to just be a reincarnation of Jesus, which I think is interesting. But they claim to be God in the sense that everything is God. And they just realize it better than anybody else. What I'm talking about here is the the statement that you're the creator God. Like, who actually wakes up one morning and says, you know what, I think I'm the one who made everything and everyone in the universe. I'm going to wear that name tag. Now there are people who've done that, but if you will Google those people, here's what you find: those people who wake up that morning and start thinking that thing also think their car is their dog, and they like to light things on fire and run around naked. They're absolutely insane, and I'm not kidding. That's what the articles read. And what's sad about that is something has gone so psychologically broken in their minds that they're like, "I'm God. I can make. Look, I'm, I made a chicken." You're like, there's nothing in your hand. Yes, there is. You know, that's that's where they're at. The other people that have claimed that they are God and literally slapped that, that, that name tag on to identify is an interesting list of another set of people. In fact, when you, when you hear these names, you'll begin to realize it's a whole other list. The first guy I found is David Koresh. Anybody remember David Koresh? He's the guy who put Waco on the map before the Gaines did. Because in his little lung, in his little compound they, they, with the FBI and all that stuff happened, we we know of David Koresh and, and his little followers. They thought he was God, and his cult following was deadly. Or how about this guy, Jim Jones? Anybody remember Jim Jones? Jim Jones and thousands of people died because they all drank the Kool-Aid. That's actually where we get the the verse or the idea from. And so. We say this: don't drink the Kool-Aid, and it's this it comes from this man who claimed that he was God, even though he was an atheist and didn't believe in God. And what's crazy is that people ran after this and pushed this, like the last guy, Charles Manson, claims he claimed he was God, and murdered many people. See, here's the thing: either you're crazy and off your rocker and have messed-up problems, or you're evil. This is the people who slapped this label on. Even the level of killing people malevolently and doing it because they, for some reason, think they can because they're God. Yeah, here's our problem. If it's the people who have have lost it uh, mentally and it's the people who are evil that have all wear this label, what do we do with the fact that Jesus claimed to be the creator God? I mean, Jesus is the one who shows up and he makes the big claim. I am not just any old God. I am the God of the universe, the one who made everything. He is the creator. In fact, he does this in multiple points at his trial when he is about when he is being tried before the Sanhedrin, which is their high court in Israel he actually is being questioned by the high priest, the, the top man of their entire authority system. And he looks at them and, he, and, he's, and he's been asking all these questions, hearing all these accusations, and he gets frustrated because Jesus remained silent up to that point. And so the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, which means I put you under an oath, a binding oath before God. Now you have to answer my question. The only high priest could do this. He says, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, You've said so. Super cryptic answer, isn't that? It's like, what, you say so. People go like, see, he denied it. No, no, what he's doing here is he's saying, yes, I am, but not in the way that you think of it. I'm not gonna just go, yes, because you have a different concept of Christ, the Son of God, than I do. And so I'm gonna clarify it. Yeah, you've said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. In other words, you're gonna see the Son of Man, me, sitting, judging the world, Mr. Judge. Here's your problem. In the Hebrew scriptures, only God judges the the world. And right there, Jesus says, yeah, I'm the Christ. And the Son of God to me is not just a title. I am God. I'm the judge of the universe. He says this in his trial moment. In fact, what's interesting is, is they get him. In fact, he'll tear his robes. He'll be frust- um, he, he will be crucified for this statement of the claim that he's basically a blasphemer, that he's going to judge the world. But here's the thing. They got this better than we get it. Sometimes we hear the word son of God, and we're like, what's the big deal? You know, We all call God father. We're all children of God. They're actually, they, they, got, they got kindergarten biology really well. So let's have a kindergarten biology quiz real quick together, Ready? Kindergarten biology. Starting off, when a chicken has a baby, that that is a what? It's a chicken. Good, good. All right, we're getting this. Right, you guys ready? Harder one. When a dog has a son, it's a a dog, a puppy. When a when a kitty has a a son, you get a a kitty. Come on, you can participate. This is not. I'm gonna hear you. A kitty. Good, good. When an alien has a son, it's a no. Aliens don't exist. Gotcha. No, I'm when a human has a son, it's a human. When God has a son, it's. Ooh. But when the creator God has a son, it's not a God, it's God. When there's only one God in the universe, then that son is God. And therefore, you start to get into the complication that the Jewish people are thinking about here. And suddenly you ask this question what is Jesus claiming? That he is God's son. He called his. God, his father, and not the way that we do, but he literally uses the term as, like, this is my dad. And so we begin to see that Jesus clearly called himself god as he uses the phrase son of god for himself in fact he goes one step further In another dispute with the jewish leadership he's in a conversation with them and he's getting into this this mode of where he's come from and they don't really know and finally he goes hey look abraham look forward to my time i don't know what your guys problem is but he was looking forward to when i'm here and now i'm here something greater than solomon something great is here and they go whoa 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 time out it's, you're not yet 50 years old and have you seen abraham and Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, in other words, listen carefully to me, please. Before Abraham was, I am. Now let's, let's paint the depth of that statement for a second. Let's back way up into the, Hebrews, into the Hebrew Bible and go back to a guy named Moses. You guys remember Moses, right? Prince of Egypt, all that stuff. And Moses out there, he's just killed an Egyptian. Forty years later, he's still watching the sheep for, for Papa Jethro. And kind of suddenly, boom, this blazing torch of a bush goes off. And he's like, that's weird because it's not burning up. And he goes over to it, and He's like, what is this? And God starts speaking to him from the bush. telling him to take off his shoes. And then he eventually gets to, you know, go back to Pharaoh and start singing, Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Oh, baby, let my people go. <clears> oh. <throat> That was your job to go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so before the song comes, actually, he, 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 Moses isn't ready to go. He's like, I can't talk well, and he gets through all these excuses. Finally, he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. what name am I supposed to tell him? When I come, who am I supposed to tell him I've been sent by? And, and God says, you want to know my name here? I'll tell you. Here's my name. Tell them I am sent you. We translate that as Jehovah or Yahweh in your Bibles. It's Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And what he's saying is, I am. I am the existent one. I am the one who's always existed. I am the one who is with you. I am here. I am the I am. And Jesus picks that word up. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was even born, before he even existed, I am. He didn't just simply say, Hello, my name is God. He said, Hello, my name is Yahweh, the God of the Jews, the Creator God who made you and everything in it. And so either Jesus is off his rocker and claiming that that things around him aren't what they are, or Jesus is a dastardly evil liar because anybody who claims to be God and is lying is, is committing a horrible, horrible evil. Or... He's God. And so we would say, if God was going to show up, he would make it clear. And I think he did. And he started with identifying himself, but then he would need to take another step. He would need to do something. Remember years ago, there was this young young guy out front of my office. He had been kind of, doing some parole work, and some, had to do some community service, so he was here at the church working it off. So I sat down with him. I was talking about you know, his beliefs, and I was just like, so do you believe in God? He's like, yeah, I guess I believe in God. I'm like, okay, cool. So what do you do with Jesus? He's like, oh, I don't know. I don't think he's God, or I, blah, I just think he's a nice teacher, or whatever. I'm like, oh, okay, but you do know Jesus' claimed to be God, right? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you believe in miracles? And so He's like, no, I don't really believe in miracles. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, hold on for me a second, because I don't understand this. He's like, what? He's like, if I came to you, And I said, I'm God. What would you think? He's like, you're crazy? Okay, well, but what if I'm serious? I was like, no, seriously, I am God. He'd say, say, well, well, prove it, prove it to me. I said, okay, okay, how would I prove it to you? He said, I don't know, like, maybe make the whole building levitate or something. I'm like, oh, so you need a miracle. And he's like, oh, yeah, I guess I had to rethink this miracle thing. See, the thing is, we would want God to prove it. Most people, when they get up one of these these gifts and things, what, what really happens is they they, they just they think that the whole box is empty. And they're just like, ah, see, there's no proof. And here's the real truth. I mean, if God was going to do something powerful and miraculous, what would happen is they would actually just turn water into, wait, wine? Okay, no, that's not wine, that's grape juice. But he would do something miraculous. Not silly, like a dumb magic trick that was extremely obvious except to my kids. And so... God would prove he's God. God would do something that only God could do, and that's exactly what Jesus does. Not only does he identify and slap on the name tag, he then starts to do things that only God would do. First of all, the people who knew Jesus reported he did real miracles, not magic tricks. I mean, miracles. Sure, you can figure out a trick, especially if you hung out with a magician long enough, they're going to reveal their tricks. But here's what's going on. They record his closest friends record that he healed people. and I don't know of kinds of stuff that is ridiculous. For example, I'll give you this one from the book of Mark. Mark is writing the recollections of Peter. And as he's writing down what Peter is preaching, he writes it this way. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Now, press time out right there. When you read that kind of detail, don't gloss over it. This isn't a fiction that somebody invents all the names and the people. This is supposed to be a recorded testimony of what happened. And so when they say, there's this guy named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind man who sat by the road at Jericho, everybody who's reading this that knows the area goes, I know that guy. When Peter's preaching likely to crowds in Jerusalem and elsewhere, it's very likely Bartimaeus is right there with him because he was well known to the church, enough that you could name him and his dad and where he came from. Then the historiography, this kind of stuff is important because it pinpoints how real or unreal is the story. And especially when it's an unknown individual in history, unlike the Iliad and the Odyssey that's going to pick out kings that everybody knows and their kids. And what we have here is a very detailed account of a man named Bartimaeus. So... When Bartimaeus heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But then he cried out even more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up, came to Jesus and Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, rabbi, Let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now, this miracle is something that's not a magic trick. It is equivalent to either he erased cataracts or he reconstituted his nerves, something we can't do so that the man could actually see. Now, in the case of a man born blind, which he does heal in the book of John, that man, he would have to also add the ability to understand what you're seeing. So it's a, con, it's a change also in the neural structures. These are things that aren't magic tricks. They are things that only God could possibly control if he's the creator God. And in this case, this individual Bartimaeus, who apparently was wearing a cloak, why you need to know that other than it's just what they saw, actually happened. Move on to another one as in this case, they're out on the boat, they're out on boats late at night. The this wind has come up, and this windstorm is sinking the boats that they're all in. and Jesus is asleep in the stern of the ship, and so they're all freaked out. And yet, what he does is something powerful. They record that he commands nature. Notice this it picks up when he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke Jesus and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. Now that sounds like a crazy person. standing up talking to the water and talking to wind, except for the fact that when he did it, the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Now what you would expect is that then them to write after this, and they all fell down and worshiped him and elevated Jesus as God. And all of you should worship as well. But that's not how it writes. Rather, what it says is that Jesus turned and rebuked them. And Jesus turned to them and said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They didn't jump in. He's God. They went, whoa. He's not normal in the normal category. If you were to actually experience the day that God proved to you that he was God, and he did a miracle, what you will experience is a sense of confusion. Because your brain doesn't have a category for miracles. That's why they're miracles. You sit back and go, that just didn't happen. No, you will search for explanations. You will try to figure it out until it's attached to a person, at which point you will freak. And that's exactly what happens. It is a psychological overwhelming moment that causes you to break and step back and go, what is going on? This is what you would expect from people who would experience God in their midst, doing something like controlling nature. And beyond that, he does something even more incredible, more crazy. He overcomes death. Now, even in like once upon a time, things like that, when you die, you die and lost. When you die, you die. That was the rules. And with Jesus, those aren't the rules. What happens is he recorded he rose the dead. In fact, in this case, it's a man named Lazarus known to live in Bethany. He has two sisters, Mary and Martha. He's wealthy. He's well-known. He has many friends in Jerusalem. And we know this because it's recorded to us another man that we shouldn't necessarily know about, but details because he supported Jesus. Now, Jesus was supposed to go and help him out. In fact, his sisters were so upset he didn't show up early because they knew he could heal. They knew he had power to heal their brother, but he didn't show up. So they're ticked. They're like, why weren't you here? You could have healed him. Why didn't you help? He says, just if you have faith, it'll be okay. And so they go down to the tomb. And so Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and the stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. I love the King James in this. You ever read the King James in this one? At this point it says, Lord... By this time, he stinketh. That's awesome. That's the way that can you imagine the air one verse of the day? He stinketh. That'd be just great. So but but Lord, by this time there'd be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And you gotta understand, this isn't like he accidentally resuscitated somebody. No, they know death. They know it intimately. They handled the body. Will we take him, put them away somewhere, maybe they woke up in a cold room. No, they took the body, they handled the body, they wrapped the body, they wrap it and they spiced the body, and they make sure that everything's very intimate. This is their brother, and they are caring for his dead, cold, stiff body. And then they go and place him on a limestone slab. Why limestone? Because everybody in their world knew when you put a human body on limestone, it deteriorates faster. It's called a sarcophagus, which means flesh-eating stone. And as you put it on the sarcophagus, the body begins to deteriorate at a rapid rate. So by this point, four days later, this body has begun to deteriorate. And it stinks no matter how much spice they put on him. And they're like, "Uh, he's dead and decaying. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, if you trusted me, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he praised the Father and says, thank you that you hear me. I want them to hear that you sent me because I want them to understand this. And then when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound, linen strips on his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And now we see that this movement happens and this becomes so big, it causes a great crowd to follow him in on the the day in which he rides that donkey and we call it Palm Sunday. Why was there a big crowd? Because they just heard this guy can raise the dead. They're just talking to the guy, and there's a plot to kill Lazarus again. Wouldn't that be nice? I just got back. Why are you trying to kill me? And so Jesus shows, not only does he have power over nature, he's the power over death. And this is what these men, these disciples are saying. We say, but Greg, Greg, it's not that he's crazy. It wasn't that Jesus is crazy. It's not that Jesus was evil and wrong. He didn't even make these statements. They made it up. Why would they make it up? What motivation would you and I have to make something like this up? In that time period, amongst Jewish people, believe there's only one God and they kill anybody who disagrees with them and they're Jewish. Because that's what happened to them. They all died torturous deaths, save John, for what they claimed. They didn't get any money out of it. They were taught to give it all away. They didn't get any sex out of it. They were taught to be celibate if you're single and to only put that into marriage. They changed the sexual ethic of the world. They didn't get any power. They were killed. What motivation did they have to bring these stories up? In a podunk, small town, side of the empire that nobody was paying attention to. Prior to Jesus, nobody even read the Old Testament outside of Israel and Jewish enclaves. There's no room to make this big. Why make that up? That kind of leads me into the next point where if God was going to come, he'd make it clear. I believe he did. He identified himself. He proved that it was him. And then he put himself in a situation where people could identify him as well. Let me put it this way. Why doesn't he show up today? Because I don't think we'd figure it out. With all our internet, with all our stuff, there'd be still a sense of people going like, oh, he's a Hindu guru. Oh, he's a Buddhist monk. Oh, he's a this, he's a that. But he's not the creator God. We don't want to hear that. But in their time period, they had, there's been 12, for 2,000 years, God had prepared a people who believed in only one God, okay? Check this out. Find me another religion in the ancient world that believed in one and one, only one God. And they weren't very large to be well-known until modern times. And the only one we do know of that had any degree of sense or, or strength was the Jewish people, and they were fiercely monotheistic, fiercely believing in one God. And here they are. they've got this one God, they believe them and trained to look for, they know what He looks like, they know how He acts, and then Jesus shows up on the scene. And what we see is that other people were trained to identify them. This is my, my passport. I think it's my expired passport, I hope. And so the, uh, what, what you do when you come through, if you guys know about your passports, they take out your passport, they open it to the picture page. They hold it up like this and they stare at you for five minutes waiting for you to blend. I don't know what they're looking for, but they know what they're looking for. And then they put it under a black light, and they start looking around on the thing because they know there's special things to look for to prove that this is the actual one. They've been trained to look for it, just like the Jewish people were trained to know what God looks like and to know to identify God. And all the people that surrounded Jesus were Jewish men and women who were trained to look and see that Jesus was God. In fact, what's interesting is that what we, that's what we find. Those who knew him would recognize him. when they In this case, there's a paralytic that's it's been brought down from a roof, set right at Jesus' feet. And so when he sees them and their faith, he turns to the man and he says, Man, your sins, your moral failures are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, Who in the world is this guy think he is? He's speaking blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right? If you knew somebody had sinned against you, done moral failure against you, and I come up and say, Well, I forgive him. You're like, You can't forgive him. Well, gives you a right to forgive. He hurt me. I forgive him. You can't forgive him. Well, if the guy is God, he can, because he's God. And they know that. They get that logic. And so Jesus, understanding they're thinking this, he turned and they said, why do you question your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? We all know it's the first one, right? It's easier to say something you can't see has actually been done. And so he says, but that you may know the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. And all the people freaked out. Because not only did he, was he able to make a man walk, he was able to forgive sin. Only God forgives sin. Even the, even the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders knew. Only God gets to do that. That's God's thing. It's important to note. They were identifying that he was claiming to be God, that he was doing things that only God could do. In fact, when he, your close, his closest friends finally get down to it, they're the ones who write all this stuff. Now, they end up claiming that he was God. Let me ask you a quick question. What would induce you? Well, first, let me ask this. With a, with a show of hands, how many of you have lived with somebody you know, parents, or, uh, you know, maybe it's uh, uh, a, you've had a roommate, maybe it's been a friend, or you're married. Throw your hand up real quick. Hi, no, thanks. Pretty much everybody in here. What would induce you to bow down in front of that person that you lived with and declare, you are my Lord and my God? What what would get you to do that? And then write a bunch of books about how that person was really God, because you lived with them for three whole years, man, and you knew it, like, right, no. You live with somebody long enough, you ain't going to do that, Right. Nobody's going to be like, yeah, that guy's God. Well, that's exactly what happens with Thomas, the most doubting skeptic of the 12 closest friends of Jesus. He's the one who winds up on his knees and crying out, my Lord and my God, when he sees Jesus resurrected from the dead. It is his close friends who end up writing that he is God, who end up declaring that in a Jewish context that believes in only one God. And these guys were willing to say, yeah, we lived with him for three years. And for all that time, there was nothing that didn't say this guy wasn't God so he identified himself, he proved it, and the people nearest to him were actually claiming that he was. Now, let's switch it one degree further. Any of you have a brother? I don't have a brother, I have a sister. If you have a sister, sibling, how much would you need to be paid? Or when the world would need to happen for you to declare that your brother or your sister was God? And be confident enough to lead the movement. You're like, one one lady yelled, it would take a miracle. Right, that's exactly what it would take. Because we just don't believe our brother. You live with them. You watch them pick their nose and take their baths or not take their baths, depending on what your brother's like. You know, you you were with them. James is the brother of Jesus. Grew up with Jesus. We know everything that his friends wrote about, about James and Jesus' relationship is James thought Jesus was cuckoo. His whole family was like, brother's gone on to the loony bin. Let's go get him and take him home. He needs to stop doing this. And they went to go seize him several times. And Jesus would use it as an opportunity to teach stuff. And yet this guy who's out to actively stop his brother from claiming he's God and doing these things winds up running the Jerusalem church after he sees Jesus after his crucifixion, resurrected from the dead. He looks, sees Jesus alive, and then winds up running the church. And we know this apart from the Bible. We know James was the head of the church from Josephus, a Jewish historian who wasn't Christian. And James, actually in his letter to the church, says this about his brother. He claims that he was very clearly God. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Lord of glory is a title given to the God who shines forth his glory. When the prophets would see the glory of God, they would see see a shape of a man sitting upon a throne. This is what he's referencing. He's saying, yeah, you know my brother, Jesus? Yeah, that guy? Yeah, he's the Lord of glory. So what gets the brothers to say that? he's claiming that he's God, he proves that he's God through miracles, the people who are set up best to identify God on earth do so and shout about it and say even the brother's willing to go, yeah, I was wrong, he is. Man, we've got to seriously consider the wonder at Christmas. Because if God came, and I believe he's come, and when God comes, he's going to make it clear. So clear, in fact, the world would, it would be known worldwide. It would be understood globally. Because guess what? Everything that happens globally is known pretty much to an extent, especially if it's big, like 9-11 or, you know, Trump in 2017 or bailout programs or 25-year-old babies, you know, that kind of stuff. This is not the National Enquirer. That's that's a fertilized egg that was born 25 years later. But these kind of huge events are written about. They're stored. They're disseminated. You get them on your phones. You get them in the news. They did the same thing back then. Why do you think you know about the Renaissance? Why do you think you know about the fall of Rome? Why do we know anything about Babylonians? Why do you know about Abraham Lincoln? Because you met him? No, because artifacts are left for us to look back to and writings are left that we look to and we realize they're telling us about history and we take that history and we get it. Guess what? The event then about God showing up when at least you would expect it to go worldwide that everybody would have a chance to hear about this. Last time I checked, it's been going as far as it can for 2,000 years. So much so, most of the Hindu people want to claim their God. Claim that they're who? Jesus That Jesus being God has resonated so far the Jewish people in their Talmud have reasons why Jesus isn't. The, the, the Muslims know that Christians believe that Jesus is God. Everybody has heard on this planet about, who has heard about Jesus understand he's claimed one thing, that he's God. And I think he proved it. I think he has enough evidence here of people around him and it's gone global. In fact, we'd expect something else. Not just that it's gone global, but wouldn't you expect if God showed up that something would radically change in history? starting starting to sound like a broken record here for a minute, but the Roman Empire was preceded by the the Greek Empire, which was preceded by another empire called Persia and, and Media. And then before that was Babylon, and before them was another empire. You had the Hittite Empire, and before the Hittite Empire, you had the Babylonian Empire, a smaller one, but it was a different version. And, bef- and then the Mesopotamian, You had the Egyptian. And in other words, human history has been empire conquering, empire conquering, empire conquering, empire conquering, empire conquering, empire. Small enclaves of people rising up to take over. You know who should have taken over Rome was this group called the Parthians, and they never did. In fact, Rome just didn't have great military. Something radically shifted Rome that shifted the world. And it was this teaching of a man named Jesus that taught people to stop thinking about themselves, but the poor around them to lift them up, to love their neighbors as themselves, to be faithful to their marriages, and to love their husbands and love their wives. It was there that babies were taken from being exposed and dying and brought into the homes of Christians and orphanages began as they started caring about children. Education called schools began. The schools were happening in monasteries, which turned into universities. And those universities began to continue to educate the masses and the people in deeper and deeper things. Like the idea that the universe is ordered by the word of God. And we can go into it and find order, which set the foundation for science. And all the things that we talk about in this world today, from the values and the revolution of the values, the revolution in the scientific knowledge, is based from what happened had Jesus Because Jesus came. That's the kind of impact you would expect if God showed up on earth. The entire value system was revolutionized. To the point that we talk about human rights everywhere today. A concept lost on the ancients. And founded in the teachings of Jesus and the Hebrew scriptures. I don't know. I think if God showed up, he'd probably let us know. Probably make it clear. He probably would have shouted about a long time prior to that, with maybe some prophecies and things. Get our attention to when he'd be here and then make it absolutely clear from identifying himself, proving it, having people around him that could, and the world being changed by it. But here's the question I want you to ask. Not, not just to be at wonder that God came in a human being at Christmas time. That's enough. Christians, go deep in your theology enjoy. joy. But you should ask the question, if you're not a Christian, why in the world would God come? And the answer is because we are a bunch of moral misfits and failures. Man, we have failed morally so many times. And there is a day coming in which there will be a judgment. and We will stand for our moral failings. We will stand alone before God. And we may be sorry, but we have no way to make it right. And so he tells us, hey, listen, I love you, but you can't make it right with me because by the time you're judged, you're dead. So I'm going to give you a way to make it right. I'm going to save you from that, that danger. What I'm going to do is I'm going to come, I'm going to be your substitute, I'm going to take all of your sin, all of your moral failure on myself, and I'm going to forgive you if you'll receive my gift of forgiveness. And that's where you're left, that God made it clear because what he wanted to do is get your attention to forgive you of that which stands between you and him, what will keep, what will send you to hell. He says, I don't want you going there, I love you, nobody should go there, which you need to be is forgiven and receive my gift. That's what he offers. And that's what you can receive today. Would you bow your heads with me? Today you may need to receive that. I want to tell you something. You don't earn it. You don't pay for it. You don't be a good person to get it. You don't even get to count on your good things. What God has done is he's given that to you because he loves you. He just wants you to receive it. He is giving you this gift. That's why we give things at Christmas. He gave first. And so he offers this gift to you, that if you would receive it, he'd forgive you of your sins, and you'd have a relationship with God. Maybe today you know that you need to be forgiven of those moral failures. You need this gift. And so I want to give you a chance right now to receive it. What you're just saying is, God, yes, I want to receive that gift. And you just put your hand up. I want to walk you through a prayer. When you're putting your hand up, just acknowledging, God, I need to be forgiven and I want to receive that gift today. So if that's you, just put that hand up high enough so I can see it and I'll pray with you. Just start here. Just say, God, I know that I failed morally in so many ways. And I'm so sorry about it. I ask that you would give to me that forgiveness in Jesus. I receive it now. And I ask you to come into my life, please, and lead me from here. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.